The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Good morning, everybody. How are you guys? All right. It's good to be with you. Uh, First off, um, Jeff is in Uganda right now, and he sends his greetings. He actually called me last night at 11 p.m., and I saw the phone ring, and it said it was Uganda, and I'm like... It's 11 o'clock, do I want to answer this phone call? And I thought, what if Jeff's being held hostage? And, you know, i got to call 911 like they could do anything. And um, anyways, I answered. He was just calling to say hi, um, which I was thankful for. Anyways, he said things are going really well. He asked uh, for our prayers. Um, he just preached, uh, I guess, I forget. I was just there, but I forget the timing. Um, but he had just preached in a little church um, outside of Makano there um, <clears throat> and is headed up to um, Kampala, the capital of Uganda, to do um, a, a pastor's conference with some other pastors in the A29 network, which is exciting. So the gospel's moving in Uganda, and these are amazing people, so keep them in your prayers. They love you. They pray for you. Uh, they think about you way more than we think about them, which convicts me often. Um, so let's even uh, lift them up too while we pray. But before we do that, uh, would you guys grab your Bibles, turn them open to Luke 17, starting in verse 20, and then I know you just got comfortable, but if you could hop up in honor of God's word, and let's just read it together before we pray. Luke 17, verse 20, says this. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. And he said to the disciples, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, look there, look here, do not go out or follow them, for as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying, being given in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, They were eating and drinking, buying, selling, planting, building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not go down to take them away. Likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife? Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. I tell you, in that night there will be two in one bed. One will be taken, the other left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken, the other left. And they said to him, where, Lord? And he said to them, where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. This is God's word. Father, This morning as we turn our attention over these next 
hour, Lord, we turn our attention to your scriptures, God. We give it our highest reverence. Not because um, of the paper, of the pages, but because this is the living word. Because this represents your words and your words are connected to your nature. God, we submit ourselves this morning to your word. We ask you, God, not that we would just obtain knowledge that can condemn us, that can make us stagnant and dead, but that, Lord, this living word would bring forth fruit, that it would shape us and cut us and heal us and redeem us. I pray that the gospel, Lord, would bring forth worship this morning. We pray for our brother, our pastor, Lord, in Uganda. We pray for these churches over there that you are planting. We pray that the gospel would go mightily over there and grow mightily over there. Bless that time, God. We thank you that your church is scattered all across the, the, the face of the earth. Lord, we ask you to speak in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. Amen. Guys, can grab a seat. This is a pretty fun passage. I'm excited to get into it with you guys. So, the oldest question, maybe one of the oldest questions that humans have asked since the beginning of time, how is this thing going to end? What's going to happen, man? I mean, what, what, like, how many movies have been made about what could happen in the end of all things? It's interesting that we even think that as humans, isn't it? I mean, it, it's almost proof that there is some kind of a thing coming. <laughs> the reason we think that is because there's actually things as human beings we agree on. You may not realize that because we pretty much disagree on everything as humans, but there are a few things that we agree on. Um, some things have just come to light even uh, in the last hundred years or so that have actually agreed with the Bible. What do you know? Um, and some of those things are this. Uh, we know now because of science, we actually know that the universe, the material universe, had a beginning. Do you know that? They proved that. That's why all of a sudden now we believe in this thing called the Big Bang. Instead of the universe just always existing, now it's like, oh, it must have started randomly at this bang. Okay, so everybody agrees, Christian, non-Christian, the universe had a beginning. Everybody agrees that we are dying as human beings. Death rate's 100%. Okay, everybody agrees about that. And, and most people agree, even scientists now, that the universe cannot continue. It is actually expanding. Did you know that? It's expanding at such a rate that scientists actually believe that at some point it cannot continue to do so, and they don't know what's going to happen, but it seems like it's going to end. So humans know, both in our intuition and our cognition, we understand that the universe will not continue as it is. We understand that our material bodies will not continue as they are, and they, they have the question of where did we come from? And really what that does is it creates three, three primary questions that humans have to answer. To be a human being is to ask these three questions. The first one is, why am I here? Second one is, how did I get here? <laughs> and the third one is, where am I going? Like, these are standard questions for human beings to answer. Now, depending on how you answer these questions, will tell you what your worldview is. Now, I actually believe that, that every human has something I'm going to call the utopian worldview. A utopian worldview, the, the idea of utopia is basically this, this perfect, uh, someday everything's going to be great. Someday. There's pie in the sky. Someday everything's going to be great. And as humans, we have it stitched into our being to think that. We just think, like, there's got to be something better coming. That's why every religion has some kind of a version of heaven. Every worldview has some kind of a version of heaven. I'm going to call it the utopian worldview. And let me give you some examples of different utopian worldviews. And, And notice they all hinge around these same three questions. Where do we come from? Why am I here? Where are we going? 
Uh, one of them would be the religious person's utopian worldview, and I'm using religious in a negative term. The religious person's utopian worldview, they claim that we come from a god or gods. They claim that we exist in order to justify our existence and that where we're going is to either a good or bad place based on what we do. Okay, that's pretty much every religion in a nutshell. Uh, this is good news for them because they are in control of their destiny. So if I'm a good person, I go to heaven. If I'm a bad person, I go to hell. Utopia for the religious person is found through doing the right things. You get the manual, you obey the manual, utopia comes. Okay, that's the religion. It's not the gospel, that's religion, just to clarify. Then we have modernism. Okay, modernism came with the Enlightenment. Uh, we're so smart now, we come up with stupid things like this. So modernism tells us this. We came from nothing, we exist for nothing, and we are going to nothing. That's a great utopian worldview. Uh, this is good news for people that believe that because I actually don't know why that's good news and how it could possibly be good news that we have no purpose in life, came from nothing, or going to nothing. Then we have the, the, the sort of the water that we swim in nowadays, which is postmodernism. Postmodernism basically believes this. We came from whatever you choose to believe in. We exist for whatever you choose to believe. And we are going to whatever eternity you choose to believe. Okay? Uh, this is good news if you, for them because you get to basically live in a daydream. <laughs> you get to just kind of sail through life pretending like whatever you think is true is true. Um, their version of utopia is found when everyone just embraces each other's version of truth. We all hug each other. Um, Except the truths that say that your truth isn't true. Those truths can't be right. So Christians don't get to be part of the postmodern party because we tell, you know. So, so the, you see how every person, and I'm just, my point here is just simply this, every person has some kind of an idea about what the utopian future gonna, is going to be. Because we know the universe isn't going to continue. We know we're going to die. We know that we've got to be here for a reason. We know we're here, so we know we started somewhere. Therefore, there has to be reason. And everybody thinks about this. Philosophers, theologians, scientists, all think about these questions. Now, let me ask you, what is your utopian worldview? As a Christian, which I hope that you are, if you've embraced and believed the gospel of Jesus Christ, what is your utopian worldview? Let me tell you what the Bible says. The Bible says four things. It says that, that, that our utopian worldview is this, that we were created and created with purpose, with meaning, but yet we have fallen. So first creation, then fall. We've fallen. The world is, 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 is disconnected from its source. God is redeeming all things, and he will at some point renovate all things. This is our utopian worldview as human beings. So creation, fall, redemption, renovation. This is what we believe. This is the gospel. This is what the Bible says. The problem is, is that Christians have a hard time with some of those four points. <laughs> some Christians, they really like the idea of creation. They'll argue about it, pull their kids out of school, put them in homeschool because they, they want to teach them that. They, have a, they, have a really, they love creation, um, and they really love the end, the idea that Jesus is going to come judge all things. What they really have a hard time with is, is actually looking like Jesus now. <laughs> the whole middle part, they struggle with that. Love the beginning, love the end, middle part, eh. Some people really love the middle part. We want to love everybody. We want to see people come to Christ. But man, the end just seems a little brutal. Like, does Jesus have to come back and like judge the world? And the creation thing, that's probably not literal. It's probably just like, you know, I mean, so we all struggle with different pieces of this, you know. Maybe we weren't really created. Maybe, maybe that's just kind of an idea. 
You know, people have all kinds of different, some people just, they, they, they have a, they love creation, um, you know, but they have a really hard time thinking of the cross as being anything more than a motivational thing. Like, oh, it's so sweet, Jesus died on the cross, what a motivational thing. Okay, everyone has a different view, but, but let me just, let me just say this, my thesis is this this morning, that in order for the gospel to be the best news, not just news, and by the way, gospel means news, it's, it's good news, Okay. In order for the gospel to be the best news, you have to take every part of it. You can't just take a part that you like. It's what we've really loved to do in the West. We're like, we like the ideas, the principles of Christianity. Let's keep our Judeo-Christian ethics, but forget the rest. You can't do that. Because when you eliminate certain things, it actually no longer becomes good news. And I want to show you how that's true this morning. So is the gospel that you are hopefully presenting to your neighbor, to your unsaved friend or family member, um, is it really good news? Is it really better than the postmodern utopian idea? Is it really better than the modern utopian idea? Let's see. Let's dive into it. The passage that we're going to look at this morning answers these questions. Now, a couple of, of um, things by way of preface before we get into the actual text, and we're going to walk through it verse by verse. I just need to say this. Uh, first of all, this text, I know some of you in here really like eschatology, which, by the way, we'll use that word this morning. It just means the end. It's from the Greek word eschaton, just means the end of all things when, when Christ comes back and finishes his redemptive work, okay? But some of you really like eschatology, you, you know, you're excited about it, and I'm glad for that, but I just wanna, I want you to understand something, that the passage here is not the full meal deal if you're trying to figure out all of the inner working parts of the eschatology. If you really want to go read on that, and I would encourage you to, uh, Jesus gives the Olivet Discourse in Ma- Matthew 24, and he goes into a whole lot more than what we have here. So if I don't mention your favorite part, in eschatology, like, it's okay. I'm just going to teach what's here, okay? Um, secondly, uh, I know it seems like evangelicals, like, all disagree about what happens in the end, and that's kind of true. You have, you know, you have uh, post and, and, and awe and premillennial. You have mid-trib, post-trib, pre-trib. You have preterist, partial preterist. Those are all words you don't need to learn. Um, that's all arguments within evangelicals about how it's going to work out in the end, Okay, but let me actually encourage you, and people don't say this very often, but most evangelicals actually agree on more than they disagree on, which is really good news, because, you know, whether we get raptured in the beginning of the tribulation or the end, um, I'd like to get raptured in the beginning. Does it change the end of the story? No, it doesn't. Evangelicals agree that Christ is coming, and that when he comes, he will raise the dead, and he will rule this earth, and he will judge all sin and he will bring, bring a new kingdom, restore and renovate the entire cosmos, and heaven and earth will meet, and he will rule forever in eternity. All evangelicals that are actually evangelicals agree on that, amen? That's really good news. So we can agree on that, and, and if you disagree on some of the nuts and bolts, that's okay. I'm totally, totally okay with that. So having said that, uh, by way of preface, let's jump in now to the text. Looking, starting in verse 20. And just so you know kind of where I'm going with this, uh, we'll, we'll go through the, the text and then I want to go back and look at a few, a few specific things here. So verse 20, um, it says, being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come. Okay, let me set the picture here of what's happening in the narrative. Uh, Jesus is approached by the Pharisees, again, uh, Jesus is approached by the Pharisees and as he's approached by the Pharisees, the question they have is, hey, Jesus, when is the kingdom going to come? Now, that's not really a random question, because guess what? Jesus, that's pretty much what he talked about, was the kingdom. This is what he talked, this is at the central theme of his teaching, and so they're asking him to um, explain and unpack some of the things that he's been saying. He's been talking about the fact that the kingdom is coming, and he's bringing it. 
and they want to know. And it was fairly common within rabbinical conversation and pharisaical conversation to talk about the inner workings of what it will look like when the kingdom comes. Okay, so that's not really that weird that they're asking that question. But you need to understand, too, that they have some preconceived ideas about what it's going to look like when the day of the Lord or the end comes. Some of the Pharisees, some of the Jews, they actually thought that it was going to come in an apocalyptic way. It's kind of this... uh, this idea that it's all going to happen at once, it's going to be one crazy event, and that was pretty much the majority position when Jesus uh, was, was in uh, doing his ministry. There was another part of the, the Jews and the Pharisees, they thought that the end was going to come sort of in a, in a, in a um, step-by-step unfolding kind of an idea. This person, this Davidic-type person would grow up and, and, and slowly sort of help them take uh, their country back, take their power back. So, so some of them were, were futurists, some of them were gradualists, um, but this is the ideas that are swarming around and they're, they're thinking when they come and ask Jesus this question. Um, now, Jesus' answer in verse 20, take a look at it. So Jesus answers them, The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. Nor will they say, look, here it is. Or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. The kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Now, it's really interesting that Jesus says this. By the way, when he says the phrase, not going to see it in ways that can be observed, those words, ways that can be observed, that's one Greek word, and it's periteresis, It's a Greek word that's only used in this passage in the entire Bible. And it's a Greek technical term that's used for calculating future events by charting the stars. So what Jesus is saying is, I know what you guys are doing with your time. You're you're trying to use charting and stars and charts and graphs and things to figure out exactly when the kingdom's going to come. But the point is, Jesus is saying, it's not going to come like that. At least not in your lifetime. It's not going to come like that. And then he goes a step further, says something completely shocking. He says, in fact, guys, let me, let me tell you a secret. It's already here. It's already here. In fact, it's in the midst of you. It's in the midst of you. Now, some of your translations, if you have NIV, might say within you. That's kind of a bad translation because the kingdom wouldn't be within the Pharisees. <laughs> okay. um, it, it's actually better translated in the midst of you. He's saying that this, the, 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 the coming of the kingdom is already starting. Now, it seems like Jesus might be contradicting himself a little bit here if you think about it because um, if you remember in the New Testament, he says time and time again that you're supposed to look for the coming of the Son of Man. It's going to be clear. Even in our text, it's like this, this cosmic apocalyptic event. So why is Jesus saying, actually, you are missing it. It's happening right now. You're missing it. How is he saying that? Isn't that contradictory? Uh, it's not contradictory because Jesus is talking not about the full consummation of the kingdom, He's talking about the inbreaking of the kingdom. He's talking about the in, like picture a sword, you know, stabbing into to, to, to a sack of potatoes or something. It's, it's the, the tip of the sword is beginning to, to pierce. The kingdom is beginning to break into this universe. The kingdom is beginning to break into time and break into space. And, 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 it's, and it's happening, but it's happening in an unfolding way. That's what Jesus is saying. And he's saying, it's, in fact, it's in the midst of you. It's in the midst of you because I'm in the midst of you. The kingdom is beginning to be here because the king is here. And I've said this before, but it's a perfect analogy. C.S. Lewis just nails it when he does the Lion of the Witch in the Wardrobe, right? This frozen earth because the witch has been in control for so long. All of a sudden, in the movie, this sort of the sub-narrative, you start to see the snow begin to melt. 
And the sun begins to come out of this frozen world that this ice witch has been in control of. Have you seen the movie, anybody? Um, and, they, and they say, what's going on? It, it, Aslan is here. He's on the move. The kingdom is coming because the king is here. This is what's happening. Jesus is bringing the kingdom. He is the king. He's the inbreaking of the kingdom. And they, they can't see it. They completely miss it. Oh, why can't they see it? Why are the Pharisees blind to this? If you think that the color red is the color blue, and I say, hey, look, I see the color red, you won't see it because you don't know what color it is. <laughs> right? You with me? Is that confusing? Should I use apple and orange? I don't know. They're missing the kingdom because they actually think the kingdom is something different. Let me tell you what, what they think the kingdom is versus what Jesus thinks the kingdom is. The Jews, see, they want the material kingdom first and the spiritual kingdom later. In other words, they don't really care about whether they're right with God. They really just want the material kingdom to come. Jesus, he's very interested in whether they're right with God. Jesus wants the spiritual kingdom first as a foundation for the material kingdom. The Pharisees, the Jews, they want a kingdom for the glory of Israel. Jesus wants a kingdom for the glory of the Father. The Jews want a kingdom accessed by their ethnicity. Jesus wants a kingdom that is accessed by faith. The Jews want a kingdom like the Solomonic era with a Davidic type king keeping the status quo. Jesus wants a cosmologically renovated kingdom that is infinitely better than Solomon's and David's where he personally rules and reigns. You see the difference here? Jesus is trying to lay a groundwork and a foundation where he is the chief cornerstone for a kingdom that is unlike anything that the Jews of that time could imagine. And they're confused. That's why they don't see it. That's why they don't see it. Looking at verse 22 now, notice the transition in this passage. Jesus turns from talking to the Pharisees, and then he, he turns his attention over, probably in a separate place, apart from the Pharisees. He turns his attention, and now he begins to teach the disciples. And, and you'll notice there's a, there's a difference. So the Pharisees, he's kind of vague. The kingdom's already here. You're missing it. You're blind. And then he goes and he talks to the disciples. He's like, let me tell you guys the details. Let me get into some of the, the meat of what it means for the Son of Man to come. So taking a look here at verse 2. He said to the disciples... The days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man and you will not see it. No, the first thing he says is, and he actually says six things. We're going to go through them one by one. He says six things about the nature of the coming of the King. Okay, six things about the nature of the coming. The first thing he says is, there's going to be a time where you wish I was here. There's going to be a time where you're sitting in your living room watching the news and you are absolutely fed up with all of the pain and the sorrow and the suffering that we see every day in the world, and that you are longing, he's talking to his disciples, remember this, you are longing for one of the days of the Son of Man. What does he mean by the days of the Son of Man? He's talking about the time when Christ will be ruling supremely where he will not be withholding his power, restraining his power like he is now in order to make way for people to get saved, but the time when Christ's power is fully consummate. He's saying you're going to long for that time because there's going to be a time, 2,000 plus years of it, where you have to watch sin destroy lives and families and people, and you will wish if only the Son of Man was here ruling and reigning physically. Anyone longing for that? There it is. 
Jesus said this would happen. He said there's going to be a time where you want it to come. Notice that he doesn't use by accident the word son of man. That's Jesus' favorite name for himself. And if you don't understand that name, you're, really, you're kind of at a deficit when you read the New Testament. Uh, when Jesus calls himself the son of man, he's referring back to uh, the book of Daniel, who was an a, um, exilic prophet during the time of the exile. And this is what Daniel said about the Messiah. He called him the son of man. Listen to what he says in Daniel seven thirteen. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days, that's the Father. And he was presented before him. And to him, who the Son of Man, to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. This is when Jesus calls himself Son of Man, this is what he's thinking about. He's thinking about the one that comes on the clouds to usurp his throne so that all nations and tongues will worship him. The point Jesus is making here is that when I'm not here, nothing makes sense. He was there for 33 years, and then he left for a reason. And now we wait. Second thing Jesus says is in verse 23, and that is that his return will be unmistakable. His return will be unmistakable. Look at 23. And they will say to you, look there, look here. Do not go out or follow them. He goes on to say between the lines, some guy will try to predict the date and he'll put it on a billboard and you're going to see it and he's going to be crazy. Just ignore him. You don't see it in there? It's a, it says it. Okay, it doesn't really say that. But that's what he's saying. Okay, there's going to be people that are going to come and try to tell you that they know the day that Christ is going to return. Ignore them. You have better things to do. Okay, and this wasn't just something off in the far distance that Jesus is talking about. Uh, immediately within the first century, uh, there was a guy named Theod- uh, Theodos who claimed Messiahship. There was another guy named Judas the Galilean, you can read about him in Acts chapter 5, who led a revolt against Rome, and Rome claiming to be the Messiah. He was really more of what they were expecting, except he failed. In fact, that's who they thought the Apostle Paul was. Um, the Romans thought the Apostle Paul possibly was this guy. Okay, so this is a normal thing. People coming and claiming to be the Messiah. It's like, just ignore them. And, th- and this idea that, that, hey, if you go out here at this certain time, this certain place, then the Son of Man will come. Now, you can Google and you will find all kinds of crazy people that will tell you exactly when Jesus is going to come. Just ignore it. Now, that might be extreme, but the, also, the other point here is don't spend all your time trying to figure it out. Okay, now, you can watch Fox News and you can speculate. That's fine. Don't spend all your time on Fox News trying to figure out when exactly Jesus is going to come. Pay attention to the big signs. Okay, but Jesus is saying it's just a distraction. <laughs> it's a distraction from the most important thing. For as the light, let's look at, look at verse 24. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. I remember one time out in the woods, and it was a, a, just this freak lightning thunderstorm that came out of nowhere, and lightning hit probably like 50 feet, maybe less from me. And it literally became daylight for like a second. I've never run into the house so quickly. I mean, I was just like absolutely petrified. I don't know if you've ever had lightning strike that close. What Jesus is saying here is when the Son of Man comes, not if, but when the Son of Man comes, it's going to be like a lightning bolt that stretches from one end of the earth all the way around to the other. 
every human being. Doesn't matter if you're in the bathroom. It doesn't matter if you're in, the, in, in your basement. You will know when the Son of Man comes because it will light up the sky. So don't spend all your time worrying about getting the date right. If you're spending all your time getting, you're worrying about your date right, it's because, probably because you're waiting to clean your house to the last minute. You ever do that when you were a kid? Parents are going to be home in 10 minutes. I could play video games for five more minutes. And then you're like stuffing the Doritos bag. And the, like, that's, that's not the point. When he comes, you're not going to miss it. You'll know. Number three, his return will begin with his suffering. Look at verse 25. Jesus says very adamantly, but first, so before I can come again, but first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. He must suffer many things. Now we're going to come back to that, but essentially Jesus is saying, hey, don't divorce your eschatology from the cross. If you talk about eschatology and you don't mention the cross, you're doing it wrong. And I hear a lot of people talk a lot about eschatology and they never mention the cross. Okay, and we'll come back to that. Number four, his return will be unexpected by the world. This is the fourth thing he tells us. His return will be unexpected. Take a look at verse 26. Just as it was in the days of Noah, now he's going to reach back into the Old Testament, uh, Jesus, uh, he's going to exposit some some truth from the Old Testament and bring it in uh, and show you how it's relevant. He says, just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting, building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. So what he's saying is he's reaching back into two Old Testament accounts, um, Sodom and Gomorrah, and Noah, okay, both found in Genesis. He's reaching back to these, these, these two accounts, and he's saying that just like it was in these days, it's going to be like it in, when the Son of Man comes. There's some distinctives. Well, what are the things that he's pointing out that are, that are similar? First of all, evil was rampant in all of those, including today. Evil has been allowed to, to, to be rampant. In the days of, this is one of the saddest verses in the Bible. In the days of Noah, it says in Genesis 6, 5, the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Notice that God sees the intention of the heart, not just the action. And the Lord regretted, that's so brutal, the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land. I don't need to get into the details of Sodom and Gomorrah. We know that was one of the most wicked cities in history. Okay, you can read about it in Genesis 19. Some angels even came to, to bring warning and the men were so debauched and so immoral that they came and tr- tried to have sexual relationships with these angels. It was absolutely disgusting time. And God judged that city. And even now in our current day, Paul said to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.1, he said, but mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful pride, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of good. So what Jesus is saying is, hey, it's going to be just like it was in the time of Noah, just like it was in the time of Sodom. 
But similar to that, not only was it immoral, but it was also, they were also warned. Noah warned everybody, didn't he? <laughs> they wouldn't listen. Lot's daughters even tried to get their husbands to listen that God was going to judge the city. They wouldn't come. They wouldn't follow. And even now, there is warning, right? And people are rejecting that salvation. And just like in those days, some were saved. And just like in the Son of Man comes, some will be saved. Lot and his three daughters were saved. Should have been four people. Ended up being three. Noah and his sons, eight people. And in the day of the Son of Man, God's elect will be saved. These are the similarities, but don't miss the main point here. The reason Jesus is drawing back to these two stories of Sodom, Gomorrah, and Noah is not to make a contrast between immorality or or to a connection of immorality. His main point is actually different. His main point is that just like these guys that were doing everyday normal things, look at what he says specifically. They, they They were marrying, they were eating, they were working. Are those evil things? No. You would expect Jesus to, to talk about the immorality of these places, but instead he talks about the, the, the normal day life. That just like when Noah was building the ark and the flood came, these guys were just living, just doing stuff, working on their vocation, getting their degree, finding a wife, having kids, providing for their families. Those aren't evil things, those are normal things. Same thing in Sodom and Gomorrah. Yeah, it was an evil place, but they're still doing normal things. And that was when the Son of Man will come. That's when the Son of Man will come, when things are going on as normal. And Jesus' point here, his point is wake up. Wake up. It's the normalcy of life, the rhythms of life that will lull you to sleep. You know, it's funny, we always assume that as long as we're staying away from the flamboyant and erotic and gnarly sins, that we're somehow okay. But Jesus' warning is nothing to do with all of their gross immorality, which they had. His warning is that they were completely lulled to sleep, doing the normal things of life, which we all obsess about all day long. Doctor's visits, work, these things aren't evil. But they can lull you to sleep. And I think that the greatest concern for the American and the Western church sometimes is not that we've become so grossly immoral as much as we've become so comfortable. We are so comfortable. We're so comfortable. We don't think about things that matter. We read texts like this and we say, can we get on to something different, please? I don't want to hear about judgment. We need a reality check. We need to wake up because we are asleep in a boat we're about to go off the cliff and we will do anything to not rock it. Even sail off the cliff, right? Our job as Christians is not to let people continue to just do daily rhythms of life. It's to beg them to wake up to what is coming. There is no escape. Dying is not an escape. Your body will be raised and judged. We have to tell them. This is the indictment Jesus brings, is that they're sleeping. Number five, his return will also be revealing. His return will also be revealing. Look at verse 31. On that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house, by the way, uh, people lived in houses that had flat roofs with sod on the top, and they spent the majority of their, their hours during the day or in the evenings on top of their roofs. Uh, let the one who's on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. Likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. 
Okay, Jesus is essentially saying this, don't be found with your arms wrapped around the world. The Son of Man is going to come, and when he comes, it's going to be intense. It's going to be severe. And if you, uh, if you have the inclination when you're on your rooftop to go into your house and get your most treasured goods, then your heart is pretty well already lost. When the Son of Man comes, it, it, and when the judgment comes, if you're, if you're so worried about your stuff, then that stuff is your God, and you will perish with it. That's what Jesus is saying. If you're in a field, if you want to be saved, don't run in and get your stuff. Your stuff is what's condemned you in the first place because you love it more than you love God. And then he says three of the most sobering words in the entire Bible. You ready? If you can memorize a verse, memorize this one. Sometimes the smallest verses pack the heaviest punch like Jesus wept. That's an insane verse. This is seriously, this is three of the most intense words in the Bible. You ready? Verse 32. Remember Lot's wife. Remember Lot's wife. Let me read to you something from the 1800s. Uh, Anglican Bishop J.C. Ryle wrote an entire chapter in the book Holiness about this subject. He says this, That look was a little thing, speaking of the look of Lot's wife, which, by the way, if you don't know the story, she's supposed to leave Sodom. She's supposed to not look back. She sneaks a glance and instantly becomes a pillar of salt. This is what J.C. Ryle says about that. He says, That look was a little thing, but it told of proud unbelief in Lot's wife. She seemed no doubt whether God, or she seemed to doubt whether God was really going to destroy Sodom. She appeared not to believe that there was any danger or any need for such a hasty flight. But without faith, it is impossible to please God. The moment a man begins to think he knows better than God and that God does not mean anything when he threatens, his soul is in grave danger. When we cannot see the reason of God's dealings, our duty is to hold our peace and believe. Now listen to this. That look, speaking of the the look of Lot's wife, that look was a little thing, but it told of secret love of the world in Lot's wife. Her heart was in Sodom, though her body was outside. She had left her affections behind when she fled from her home. Her eye turned to the place where her treasure was. As the compass needle turns to the pole, and this was the crowning point of her sin, the friendship of the world is enmity with God. If any man loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. It seems severe that this woman was turned into a pillar of salt for sneaking a glance back at the home where she was raised, where her kids went to school, where she spent her entire life. And Jesus says clearly, remember this woman. Because that glance of her eyes meant a lot more than it seemed. What that glance revealed was that her heart was still in Sodom. Her heart still loved the world. Her affections were still for the things of this world rather than for God himself. It was revealing of her true nature. And therefore, she was destroyed with Sodom. And then Jesus goes on in 33. He says, whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. I tell you, in that night, there will be two in one bed. One will be taken, the other left. There will be two women grinding together wheat in the fields there. And says, one will be taken and the other left. Now, a couple of things on, on that last verse there. It's talking about the separation of the believer from the unbeliever. Um, people debate as to whether it's a rapture verse or not. I'm not going to get into that. Um, but what it does speak to is it speaks to the fact that this is a global reality because you have one person who is being uh, taken who is in the daytime, and then at the same time you have another person being taken at night. So it's something that's happening all around the world. It's nighttime somewhere. It's daytime somewhere else. 
Also, I want you to notice that what distinguishes the believer from the non-believer is, is, it's, it's not position or vocation or what they do. They're both grinding wheat. They're both sleeping. They're both doing normal life. From the exterior, it's hard to tell who is actually the Lord's. It's hard to tell. But at one point, God will tell. God will separate. And then lastly, uh, his return will be devastating. This is how Jesus chooses to end this teaching, okay? You ready? Verse 37. They said to him, where, Lord? Kind of an interesting question. Where, Lord? He said to them, where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. What a way to end a sermon. Kind of tells you what the point of what Jesus is trying to get across here is that these guys need to take this seriously. Because in the end, it will be devastating. Now, if you're a normal human being, you're probably thinking, Sam, how is this good news? Jesus coming and, 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 and judging the world in such a way that is so devastating that where, where, where the, <laughs> the corpse is, the vultures will gather. In other words, you know, whenever there's a dead body, there's vultures. How is that good news? How is this something I can tell my unsaved coworker and have it be any kind of good news? I'm glad you asked that question. I want to spend the last bit of our time uh, just pointing out three things, okay? Three realities that must be true for the gospel to be good news, okay? Three realities that must be true for the gospel to be good news. Because believe it or not, what we just read, the coming of the king, the judgment of the earth is good news, It's really good news, and I want you to see why, okay? The first reality that must be true, the first reality that must be true is this. Jesus must suffer and be rejected by this generation. You have to believe that. Let me show you why. Go uh, go back, and and let's just take a a closer look at verse 25. Um, Again, Jesus talking about the end. He inserts this one kind of seemingly one-off phrase here. Um, Verse 25, he says, But first... Before the Son of Man comes, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. So Jesus, again, is inserting the cross into his eschatology. He's saying you need to understand how the cross matters to the end, how it changes the end. And the reason is because without the cross, the end is bad news for you. Look at what Jesus did, okay? He says, first of all, he says he must. He must suffer. This is not an optional thing. Jesus doesn't say, you know, I'm going to redeem the universe, but maybe I'll go to the cross just so that we can kind of have a cute story to tell our kids about how Jesus gave his life like a martyr. Plenty of martyrs. The disciples were martyred. Okay? Jesus isn't just, I'm just going to go to the cross because I might as well. Jesus has to go to the cross. He must go to the cross because if he doesn't go to the cross, then the coming of the king is bad news for everybody. Okay? It's bad news for everybody. He must come. And he must what? He must suffer. Isaiah, the prophet, he told the Jews, he told them that this was coming. He said, surely he's borne our grief and carried our shame. In Isaiah 53, by his stripes were we healed. Jews were totally confused about the suffering idea, right? They actually thought maybe there's two messiahs. Maybe one's going to come suffer and the other one's going to come reign. Maybe they thought it was two different. They never thought that the messiah would actually come suffer so that he could reign. Jesus' point is simply this. He's saying, this is only good news if I go and suffer. He also says, I must suffer many things. 
And Jesus didn't just suffer the flagellum and the beating and the, and the, the, the um, devastation of people crucifying him. Jesus suffered the wrath of God that he drank so that you and I could be justified, forgiven, given freedom. He suffered many things. He who knew no sin became sin so we could become the righteousness of God. Now here's what I want you to see though. Look what he says. He must suffer many things and what? Be rejected by this generation. He must be rejected by this generation. Why does that matter? And what does he mean by that? Let me just point something out here to you. First of all, he, he's talking about, when he's talking about generation, he's, he's in the immediate sense, he's talking about Israel. Okay? Israel must reject me. That's why Jesus wept on the mount when he came over and he saw Jerusalem because he was, he was brokenhearted that his nation, his people rejected him. But it has a deeper meaning than that. If you double click on it, it has a deeper meaning than just this, 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 the, the fact that Israel is going to reject them. The word generation, okay, generation is from the Greek word geneos. Geneos is where we get the word genealogy. It's origin. It's where we begin. It's where we start. It's connected tightly to the word Genesis. Okay? Genesis is called Genesis because it's the beginning. It's the beginning of the universe we live in. It's the beginning of humanity. It's the beginning of the Abrahamic covenant. It's Genesis, the beginning. Jesus is saying, I must be rejected not only by Israel, but by this genealogy of mankind. Mankind as a whole must reject me. Now, God thinks about humanity. He thinks about us individually, but he also thinks about us as one organism. We don't like that in the West. feels weird, but it's true. God interacts and thinks with humanity uh, as a single organism, and he connects us to our father, Adam, who's our representative. Okay, he's our representative. If the President of the United States goes and he slaps King Jong-un in the face, he represents America. We're going to war. Adam represents humanity. He is the progenitor, the first human representing all of humanity. Jesus is saying, I need to be rejected by all of humanity. All of humanity needs to reject me. It's very important that I do that. Now, why? Why did Jesus need to be rejected by mankind, the race of man? And the reason is this, listen to me. The reason is this, because he needed to become the new Genesis. The new Genesis. Okay, I'm going to use an analogy. I heard, I heard uh, somebody say this the other day. I thought it was so good, but you're going to think I'm nerds. How many of you guys have seen the old Star Trek movies? I'm not talking, I'm talking like Jim Kirk, you know, what's, what's the guy's name? Play, uh, William Shatner, right? And like Spock. And Okay, so, so a few of you guys, so I have some explaining to do. There's the second Star Trek movie was called The Wrath of Khan, and uh, really an amazing uh, movie for its day. And there's this, the, the plot is basically this. So the Enterprise uh, rendezvous with this other um, ship, and this, this ship is sort of like a science frigate. It's like this science vessel. And um, on the ship, they're basically, um, actually Captain Kirk's son, uh, they're actually, it's all coming back to me. I haven't seen it in a while. Uh, they're, they're manufacturing something called, ready, the Genesis project. And it's this torpedo that within it has all of the science and all of the the beginnings of an entirely new planet. So what they do is they go and they find this dead moon and they shoot the Genesis onto the planet and when it lands, uh, it begins the starting point of this this, uh, life that overtakes and makes the planet into a, a livable planet. It's the Genesis. 
This is exactly what Jesus did on the cross. Jesus became the new Genesis. He became the new Genesis. Listen to what he said in John 12, 23 and 24. Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly I say to you, okay, first, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Jesus is saying that in order for this this new creation to come about, I have to first become the Genesis. I have to first suffer. Listen to me. Jesus' suffering is the nucleus of redemptive history. Okay, we know now the universe started at one point. Well, the redeemed universe starts at another point. You know what that point is? It's the cross. Even more specifically, the resurrection. That's why the resurrection matters. Because God is starting a new race of man. He's becoming the new progenitor. He's becoming the new Genesis. You guys are looking at me like, Sam, this is so boring. Whatever. No, it's not. Listen to me. Okay, we think about the cross one-dimensionally. We think about, oh, the cross is just there so I can get my sin forgiven, and then I don't have to worry about feeling guilty anymore. Yes. That's one dimension. The cross is much more than that. The cross is the center, the focal point of redemptive history. It's the beginning of the new Genesis. It's the beginning of a new universe. Listen to this. Check it out. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. Listen to what Paul says. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Have you ever wondered what that means? doesn't mean he was a created being like the Mormons think. Firstborn means he was the first, the genesis, the beginning of a new humanity. Verse 16, for by him all things were created. In heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, so it's clear that he was there when everything was made. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Listen to this. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning. He's the genesis, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things. The cross was not just purchasing you and I, it was purchasing back the title deed to the entire universe so that he could start again in a new Eden, and a new temple. That's pretty cool. I'm glad I'm part of that. 1 Corinthians 15, 20 says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. He's the first one to rise. That's why the resurrection matters. Okay, we celebrate Easter not just because it's like, oh, if he rose, then he must have been God. Like, we celebrate Easter because the resurrection is really important. He was raised because he's the firstborn of many to come, of you and I. And we're going to get a resurrected body just like he did. For as by a man came death, that's Adam, but by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. Listen to this. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. So, why is it essential that the cross be part of the good news of the gospel? Because without the cross, Jesus comes only to judge. Not to renovate, not to restore, not to create a new heavens and a new earth where you and I are part of it. 
The cross made it possible for you and I to be there. You notice how every part of what Jesus did matters. None of it is unimportant. It's all important. Number two, the most <laughs> second thing that has to be there for the gospel to be good news, the kingdom must grow through the spreading of the gospel. It must grow through the spreading of the gospel. In Matthew chapter 13, Jesus gives this whole chapter full of parables that are meant to explain really one kind of thing. And that is that the way the kingdom is going to grow is not going to be all at once. It's going to grow through spreading. He, he talks about this parable of the leaven, that this tiny little thing, this, this tiny little bit of leaven goes into the lump and, and it seems like nothing. It seems insignificant. It seems pointless. But as it grows, it begins to, 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 to overtake and, and leaven the whole lump. He talks about it like a mustard seed, this tiny, seemingly insignificant thing. It goes into the ground, and then it grows into this plant. And he says this plant will overtake everything and create a new ecosystem for everything to live in. So it's essential that Jesus go to the cross because he's the genesis, but it's essential that we grow the kingdom because we are the means by which that happens, through the spreading of the gospel. That's why in Acts chapter 1, when Jesus uh, is about to ascend to the Father, and the disciples say, hey, are you going to do this thing or what? When is this thing going to happen? He's like, go spread the gospel to all the nations about the resurrection of Christ, the genesis, the new representative of mankind, and make sure you're found in him. Go tell all the earth, and once all the nations have heard, then the Son of Man will come. Let me ask you, Are you part of the kingdom right now? Are you part of what God is doing through the genesis of humanity, through this new creation? What that means is that you live in the already not yet. Let me explain. I was going to make a graphic for this, and I I totally didn't. But history is like a big arrow pointing forward. It's linear, okay? There's one arrow. This is from Adam, from the creation uh, forward. And then you have a second arrow that starts with Jesus, the new Genesis, moving on to the future and eternity. Those arrows overlap. You understand that? That's why theologians call it the already not yet because the kingdom is already here, but yet it's not fully here yet. And we as Christians, we're living somewhere in the middle of that. To be a Christian is to live in that. It, it means that all of the promises of Christ are, are fully finished but yet not finished at the same time it means that we've been crucified and and resurrected with christ but yet at the same time we have not yet been resurrected figure that one out what it means to be a christian is to live in that space it means that that we're part of what god is doing in the already not yet what it means is it means this it means that we become participated we participate in the kingdom rather than spectate and speculate Rather than sit back and just wait for Jesus to come, we're participating in the growing of the kingdom through the spreading of the gospel. It's very important that we do that. That means that we're citizens of a different world. That like in wartime, if you were a captured soldier, your sworn duty would be to rebel against and try to escape in the same way we are citizens of another country. And the overlap waiting for Christ to come, and we're not just sitting around, we're actively participating in this kingdom work. It's our sworn duty. And lastly, and we'll close with this, and you might still be asking, so yeah, okay, Sam, so the cross is important, I get that. The spreading of the gospel is important, I get that. But why is the end important? Why is the end important? The third 
absolute necessity for the gospel to be good news is that the kingdom must be consummated. And when I say that word, think consumed. The kingdom must not just be growing, but it must at some point overtake. At some point, Christ must return. Why? In order for the gospel to be good news, he has to come back. He has to come back because he has to judge all history of, 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 of sinfulness from the beginning all the way till now. If Christ doesn't come back, he's not a just God because he has to judge. He has to come back to vindicate his holy name. He has to come back because without him here, nothing makes sense. Without him here, what's the point? Now let me ask you a hard question and then we'll close. This is, this is a question that I heard John Piper ask once and it always stuck with me in regards to why Jesus has to come back. If, 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 if right now you, you, could, you could have eternity with everything you've ever wanted materially, with perfect health, perfect looks, never have a sad day, all of those kinds of things that you've ever wanted, all the money, eternity, all of the things that you've ever wanted, if you could have that, but Jesus wouldn't be there, would you want that? Would you want that? I would suggest to you that if Jesus isn't there, there is no joy. He is the source of all good things. Without him, there is no good news. He has to come back. He has to come back. We need him here. And not only is he just coming back to judge, he's coming back to renovate the entire universe. Romans 8 says, or I'm sorry, yeah, it is Romans 8, says that the material world that we live in is groaning, longing for Jesus to come back and fix what's broken. To make a new heavens and a new earth. This is really good news. This is the gospel that we need to share. This is the gospel we need to spread. People don't just need to be told that, hey, you're awesome and God thinks you're awesome and he went to the cross because you're awesome. We're already narcissistic enough in this country. That gospel's not exciting. That gospel's not helpful. And people don't need to get saved into something that allows them just to think about themselves all the time. What we need as humans is a gospel that's bigger. A gospel that includes the renovation of the universe. A gospel that, 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 that brings all things in together. That tells us what happens in the end. And a gospel that offers more than floating on a cloud singing worship songs forever with a harp. I don't want to do that. I want to rule and reign with Christ in a physical universe. Enjoying, exploring, doing all kinds of things. That's the gospel. That's exciting. And in order for that to happen, Christ has to come. He has to return. In order for the gospel to be good news, Jesus had to go to the cross. The gospel has to be spread or else you you and I wouldn't be here. And he has to return. Jesus is both the cornerstone and the capstone. He is the beginning of the church and he is the end. He is the most important piece that everything is attached to, but he also comes in the end in order to finish the building, the temple that you and I are, in order to inhabit the praises of his people forever. Jesus has to come. And we should welcome his coming. We should welcome his coming. We should long for his coming as we build his temple. Listen to me. There is no hope outside of the gospel. And you possess, you possess, you've been given it like a stewardship. 
the best news in the universe. You, you, you have it. And you, you've been called to share it. The world is asking these questions. You understand that? Your friends are asking these questions. How did I get here? Why am I here? Where are we going? You don't have to come and stick a bumper sticker with a fish on there. Like, just talk to them about things they care about. Ask them, like, why, have you ever wondered why the world completely is broken? Have you ever wondered why people are walking into buildings with guns and blowing people away? Have you ever wondered why things are broken? Have you ever wondered if that's ever going to be dealt with? Have you ever wondered that? Talk to them about real things because the gospel answers real questions. It's not some feel-good, motivational, you know, you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you, you can get a touchdown with the football kind of a message. This is an all-encompassing, universal, healing message that's going to literally change the cosmos. The cross is more than just God forgiving your sin. It's the genesis of a new world that we are going to inhabit. This is good news. Let's go tell people about it. If people aren't interested in the gospel, it's because we've made it boring. If Christianity is not exciting, it's because we are not looking at it the way it was meant to be looked at. This was so powerful to the disciples that they were willing to be martyred. It was the resurrection. The resurrection was so profound to the disciples that Jesus rose from the grave, that he was who he said he was, that he was coming again, that they gave their physical lives for this message. You understand that? They were crucified, some of them. They were beheaded, some of them. They were killed, some of them, and persecuted, some of them, because they believed so strongly that this gospel would transform people's lives and that it was true and that it was real and that Jesus was really going to come on the clouds and redeem the universe. They really believe it because it's true. And it's as true today as it was true then, except now there's been billions of people that have come to Christ because the gospel is spread through people like you and I that have just said, I'm going to go do it. I'm going to be that leaven. I'm going to see it grow. We step into this story. It's exciting. Revival happens when we believe that the gospel is the best news in the universe and that Jesus is the best thing in the universe and there's nothing better to live for. The Holy Spirit lives to glorify Christ and he wants to do it through you and I. Be a conduit. Just ask him. Would you guys stand with me? Father, I'm so thankful for passages like these that I would probably read past but are shaping, fundamentally shaping to the way that I think. Lord Jesus, you did nothing unnecessarily. You did it all with great purpose. I thank you that you were incarnate, that you became man, that you lived the perfect life and then gave me that perfect credit, that you died on the cross and absorbed the wrath that was meant for me, that you were resurrected as the firstborn from the dead to pave the way for your church that you ascended to the Father in order to, to pray for us, to, to be at the right hand of the Father, make intercession for us, send the Holy Spirit so he could empower us for this work we can't do. Thankful for the, the way that this message has overtaken so many and changed so many lives and brought so many sons home and daughters home to glory.
And I'm thankful, Lord Jesus, that you are coming again, that you're not going to leave it like this. And Lord Jesus, when you come, Lord, our hearts will beat out of our chests, not because we are afraid, but because we know that we are part of you. And when you come, we will look like you, because that's what you're doing right now through the Holy Spirit. You're sanctifying us to look like you. Come quickly, Lord. We long for you to come. We can't wait to inhabit your physical kingdom when heaven and earth meet. When you make a new heavens and a new earth, God, we just can't wait. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you guys. Have a great day.